0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Joshua Henkin, author of the novel Morningside Heights.
1: That's my goal as a writer, is to use language and narrative in a way that will make people get to know these characters. They don't have to like the characters, but I want to feel like they they're interested in the characters. They want to get to know their inner lives.
0: We'll be back with Joshua Henkin in just a bit. First I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash first And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free But it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Joshua Hankin, author of the novels Morningside Heights, Swimming Across the Hudson, Matrimony, and The World Without You. He directs the MFA program in fiction writing at Brooklyn College. His novels have been New York Times and LA Times Notable Books, and his novel The World Without You won the 2012 Edward Lewis Wallant Award for American Jewish Fiction. His new novel, Morningside Heights, tells the story of Prue and Spence, a married couple who met in a Shakespeare class where Prue was the student and Spence the teacher. Although Prue attended Yale and came to New York on her own to continue her education, her marriage to Spence, a star Shakespeare scholar, ended her academic career by choice. Thirty years later, Spence begins to show signs of Alzheimer's disease. Prue and Spence's daughter is away at medical school Spence's estranged son from a previous marriage is in and out of their lives, and the pressure of caretaking for him pushes Prue to find solace with another man. We began the interview with Joshua Hankin sharing the vehicle that gets him into his story.
1: You know, it's interesting, because I'm talking about this with my graduate students now, about the, how you come up with ideas for stories or ideas for novels. And you know, some people start with an image, or some people start with a line, but I always start with a character and a situation. And to me, fiction is really deeply about character. Like when I read a book that really moves me, I feel like I know those characters as well as or better than the people in my own life. That's my goal as a writer, is to use language and narrative in a way that will make people get to know these characters. They don't have to like the characters, but I want to feel like they they're interested in the characters. They want to get to know their inner lives, and so I think that's sort of just hardwired in me. Uh, my mom used to say that when I was a toddler, and I grew up in Moringside Heights, um, and she would we'd walk along Broadway, and I would make her pick me up, um, and I had to look inside every window to see what was going on in there. So I think writers are gossips at heart, and I think that um, that for me at least, it's really about you know psychological complexity that draws me to whatever it is that I'm working on.
0: So who was the character of Morningside Heights that first came to you? And what were you thinking about?
1: You know, it's interesting. The book started as a very long, short story that sort of grew to be something different from what I thought it was. I mean, in in a lot of ways, the book is the most autobiographical of my four novels. uh, My father was a professor at Columbia. Um, He was a professor at the law school for 50 years Um, And he developed Alzheimer's, I mean, late in life, much later than Spence did. But the book was inspired by him and by his experience losing his mind and by my family's experience dealing with that. And most immediately it was inspired by, my mom went to a kind of a caregiver's class at the Jewish Community Center on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And my mom is not exactly a consorting with strangers kind of person. It's not, it's not the cl- kind of class that I would have expected her to go to. And so it seemed to me suggestive of the fact of how bad things had gotten that she would, you know, seek help in that kind of place, which is not the kind of place that she would have normally sought help. And the story, as I envisioned it, was taking place um, between Prue, who is the character who's in some ways based on my mother, uh, though not entirely, and a bunch of other characters whom she meets at the JCC and the story just grew and grew. And then it became apparent to me that the story was really not about for not principally about her and the friends that she met at the JCC, but about her relationship with her husband and her relationship with her daughter and her stepson. And so the story became a novel and went in a very different direction. Now, I mean, by draft five or six of the book, the JCC was entirely gone and the only thing that remains from the JCC is Walter, who, you know, still is a central character in the story. In the original draft, um, Prue met him at the JCC, um, and now she meets him uh, otherwise. Um, but that's sort of how they had the book, the conception of the book started.
0: It strikes me when you talk about your mom going to the JCC for this caregiver's class, how so late in life, although in your book, Prue was 51, but generally in the latter part of your life, you are facing something that you've never faced before. And as an adult, in a way, you have to learn something new or embrace beginner's mind and let go of so much ego to try to handle something that you might not know anything about, or at least you know what you read in the news, but haven't experienced it firsthand. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it does. And I think um, I think we all face moments of reckoning like that, sometimes that specifically and sometimes something different. But yeah, I mean, life throws you things that you don't anticipate, or even if you do anticipate them, it's one thing to anticipate them, and it's another thing to actually experience them. So, you know, you meet someone in your 20s and then a lot changes. So for sure, I think that yeah, it really has to reinvent her life, And I think it's particularly true for Prue because, um, you know, she was a very smart and accomplished person who basically, um, by marrying Spence, sort of made his life her life and his career her career. I mean, she continued to have a job, but I think um, the degree to which she identified with his success uh, was very strong. And then when the very source of that success comes under attack, uh, I think it's really hard for her it's obviously hard for him, but I think it's also really, really hard for her. And she's the protagonist of the book, really.
0: So the basic premise is that we meet Prue in the very beginning as a child, and we follow her through going to college and graduate school, where she meets Spence, who's a very famous Shakespeare scholar who's written many books. He's a beloved professor. He's six years older than her and she's used to dating much older men and it's a little scandalous at the time because they start dating and he's the professor but she marries him and he also has a previous marriage that didn't last very long with a son named Arlo and then Prue and Spence have a daughter Sarah so those are kind of the nuclear family of the story although Arlo comes in and out he doesn't live with them and you go back and forth in time. But the, the main focus is that Spence has early Alzheimer's and Prue is trying to care for him. And so one of the things you did was you went back and forth. You started with Prue's childhood, you would go to Arlo, you would kind of shift between whose point of view you were in. Not that it was first person point of view, but you could you could access the thoughts of many characters. So I was really curious about how you modulated the time and how you went back and forth.
1: Yeah, so, so the book took me seven years to write and I wrote probably 3,000 pages. And I, that's how I tend to write in general is that I write a lot of pages and then I find the book in there. But what you're getting at is, was the real challenge of this book, which was how to how to move back and forth in time in a relatively seamless manner, and how to sort of you know push forward multiple strands of the book simultaneously, and I did it many different ways that didn't work. And in, in, in early drafts, the arcs were shorter as opposed to larger in the earlier drafts. By which I mean that I'd have a chapter in the here and now as Spence is declining, and then a chapter in Arlo's childhood, and a chapter with Sarah out in L.A. And it became a little too ping pongy. And I felt like I needed to have the reader rest in time for a longer period of time so that they could acclimate themselves to what was going on. And at some point in the writing process, I was asked to blurb a novel by Joan Silber. And there was something about the structure of that novel that gave me the idea for how to structure this novel. But I think more generally, the challenge of a book like this is that there's not really any tension in what's going to happen to Spence. I mean, unless I'm writing a speculative book, which I wasn't, you know, the course, unfortunately, of Alzheimer's is is fairly clear. And so the tension had to be not around what happens to Spence, but around how the various characters who love him and who are important to him deal with and sometimes don't deal with what he's going through. So the book is very much about the other characters, even though it's inspired by Spence's decline. And so the question of time was so important. I didn't want to spend the entire book simply describing what it's like to care for someone with Alzheimer's. I mean, there is part of the book that does that. But to me, that's a necessary part of the book, but that's not sufficient to make the book come alive. And what was necessary for me to do was to focus as well on childhood, and on the long history of this marriage. Because even though it is a book about um, a really awful disease, I feel like in a lot of ways, it's not a downer of a book. I mean, I think there is hope in the book. I think there's humor in the book. I think there are various ways in which the book is about someone with Alzheimer's, but it's also about a lot more than that. And so time was an essential way for me to try to you know, encompass all the things I was trying to encompass.
0: Was that by Joan Silber? Was it improvement?
1: It was improvement, yeah.
0: That's curious. I want to get back to the story, but I also want to ask, as a writer and an artist, how much, like you've written many books before, and it's so interesting to still be influenced by other people in your field, and I wondered how much that helps you grow. I mean, you're also a teacher, so you're also, you know, you're learning up and learning down, maybe.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think you're always learning up, down and sideways. I mean, I think that um, you know, I have I have writer friends who who don't want to teach, who wouldn't begin to know how to teach. It's just not their their thing. And in some ways, with me, it was the opposite, is that I always had a good critical sense. And I had to teach myself to become a more instinctive writer. And so um, I mean, the way I became a fiction writer is that in my early, early to mid-20s, um, I was working in a magazine out in the California Bay Area. And um, one of my jobs at the magazine was to be the first reader of fiction manuscripts. And I saw how many terrible ones there were. And I didn't necessarily think I could do any better. But I thought if other people were willing to try and risk failure, I should be willing to do the same. And so I started to write fiction. Um, But I feel like it took me a while to become, I mean, I was a natural critic, and I was a less natural writer. And I think I eventually became a natural writer, but I had to learn how to do that. And so all that's by way of saying that, um, yeah, I mean, I, to this day, my graduate students teach me things. And I think, you know, figuring out what's not working in someone else's story and what is working in someone else's story can help you figure out how to make things work in your own story. So, um, yeah, I think a writer never stops, never stops learning.
0: What's the difference for you between an instinctive versus a, a critical writer?
1: Yeah, I know. And that's, that's somewhat, a somewhat false dichotomy, but I guess what, I mean, I do, I do think I had certain things that were instinctively strong in my work, even from the start. I had a real sense of language. and But I think that um, I've seen writers who do things right, but don't even realize why they're doing things right. And then I think I've seen writers who understand much more what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I think the first kind of writer is ideal for a first draft. And the second kind of writer is ideal for revision. I think if you don't really learn craft, it's hard to revise well. So I think you need both things in some ways. But I just think different people start from different vantage points. You know, my dad was a law professor. I grew up in like, I I can never remember which is the left brain or the right brain, but the more analytic brain. I, I grew up in a family that was that way. I studied Talmud as a kid. So I was used to sort of like, thinking more analytically. And I think that um, that's an important way to think in fiction for a second draft and a hundredth draft. But for a first draft, to echo the, the name of your podcast, um, or sort of echo it, I think the way you look at different drafts is uh, is very different. And I think that for a first draft, you want to be um, more instinctive. But I, I think also that... Um, yeah, that the dichotomy between being instinctive and being non-instinctive kind of breaks down. I remember um, David Foster Wallace, in addition to being a really accomplished writer, was also a serious junior tennis player. And the New York Times Magazine used to have, I think three or four times a year, had a special sports supplement, which they no longer have. And in one of those supplements, uh, David Foster Wallace interviewed Roger, Roger Federer. He basically wrote a profile on Roger Federer And in the course of that, he talked about, I think the term he used was uh, learned instinct. And that seems contradictory, like instinct seems not learned. But I think what he was getting at is that you can learn to be more instinctive, that you, you you hit the tennis ball over and over and over again. And what you're doing originally, pretty mechanically, you end up doing more intuitively. So I think you can train yourself to be more intuitive, even though that seems like contradiction in terms.
0: And it seems also that that if you're seeking balance, not that those are the only two qualities or sensibilities when you come to the page, it's not only instinct or only criticalness, but that if you are aware enough to know the difference, you can lean towards the one that you aren't. Like if you go to the page like a wild animal, you might need just even a little more critical thought in, in the beginning, but if you're too critical, you want to just be more feral.
1: I think that's that's definitely right. Like I tell my graduate students this, that, you know, sometimes I'll just get a story that's a gift and it just works. And, you know, you don't want to examine that too carefully, but a lot of times our, our instincts fail us. And so a lot of what we do in an MFA program and what I'm doing myself as a writer is to try to figure out how to make things work, you know, when our instincts fail us. And, um, and I also think that sometimes you know, we're wrong about our work, by which I mean, I try to write as much of a draft of a book before I go back to revise it. But in my mind, I remember certain early chapters and I'll think, oh, that chapter was really good. This other chapter was really problematic. And I'll go back and I'll, I could be wrong. And In other words, the, the chapter that I thought was really good might not be quite as good as I thought. And the chapter that I thought was, was problematic uh, might be better than I thought. And so I think that sometimes, you know, you can fall in love with the sound of your own voice and get carried away, and sometimes the work that's hardest earned ends up being the best. So I think that, as you say, that there, there are different modes at different times.
0: So you had said that you you wrote, you know, maybe three thousand pages, and one of the things that struck me just in the first two pages was how you gave the reader a picture of Prue. You start with her in terms of where she was born in in Columbus to going to her Hebrew Torah Academy school, to her going to college in the next page of going to Yale. So you barely spent any time. So I was really struck by how do you choose the, the, the salient facts that you want to know that sum up the first 18 years of your character's life? And knowing that you wrote so much, maybe makes me think you had a lot to choose from, but I'm just wondering how painstaking that is. One, because it's the first page, and two, because you want to give people a sense of this character and you're covering 18 years in like a page.
1: Yeah. I mean, the the book does move very fleetly through time, especially at the beginning. It didn't originally, you know, in an original draft, those 3,000 pages, it wasn't like I covered more years in those pages. But I know it doesn't start earlier in time or end later in time, but it's the stuff in the interstices that I had to figure out what to include and what to exclude. And I guess I'd say a couple of things about that. So in an early draft, or in several early drafts of the book, it takes much, much longer for us to get to Spence's diagnosis with Alzheimer's. And it's pretty clear to the reader that something is wrong with him. And Prue just hasn't figured it out. Um, and I think there is a good amount of denial, of course, always with these kinds of things. And I know with my father, we look back and realized that there were signs much earlier that we ignored because they were too painful. But it wasn't working in the book to have, a, have that gap between what the readers know and what Prue herself knows for so long, because the reader is just waiting for Prue to find out what the reader already knows, and made Prue seem obtuse. So in various ways, I was determined to get to the diagnosis earlier. Um, That doesn't exactly address the very beginning pages, but I'm just sort of saying that there was an overall feeling on my part that we needed to get to the here and now of the book more quickly as opposed to less quickly. Um, In terms of those first few pages specifically, and even really the first few chapters that cover a lot of Pru's life in very short order. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's easy to look back and figure out how I did what I did, but at the time, I was really, yeah. I, there are a lot of things that um, that were in there that I, I think were were well written. I mean, you no know, writers talk about killing your darlings, and I, I really believe that. You know, sometimes it's the very scene that you build your entire novel around that has to go. I mean, there are a couple of scenes that I just that just killed me to cut. But eventually over the course of seven years, I realized that I had to. But I think I think it was Garcia Marquez who said jokingly, but maybe only sort of jokingly, that a novel is um is 12 times easier than a collection of stories because once he has the first paragraph of something, everything else follows. And uh, he needs 12 first paragraphs for a collection of stories and only one first paragraph for a novel. But I think there's a truth to that. And I think that I'm just looking because I haven't read the book in a while, but um, you know, the opening sentence of the novel is growing up in Bexley in the suburbs of Columbus crew had been drawn to the older boys thinking they could take her far from home. And I think that that in some ways is what the book is about, or certainly what the beginning of the book is about is her being drawn to older men her being drawn to successful and powerful men and what that is about and what that does for her and how that does take her far from home. And I think that in some subconscious way, I was keeping that first sentence in mind, and that became a sort of leitmotif. So I was able to hop from sort of like boyfriend to boyfriend and from place to place and from degree to degree, um, I mean, educational degree, to get through to the point where she meets Spence you know, many years later, but only a few pages after the book begins.
0: It's interesting when you read that sentence too, thinking of it a little bit metaphorically about how you say in the the last clause about these these older boys or eventually men thinking they could get her, take her far from home. I could see that also metaphorically as being far from her center. Not that she didn't have um, her own you know sense of herself in the world but on page 19 she she decides to quit graduate school she she's intelligent and successful on her own right but she mary spence and decides to quit and you write it scared her this giving up of things but it was exhilarating too um i thought that was a really interesting sentence it was seemed both true it could also be an excuse, but it was like the life she was maybe meant for.
1: Yeah, I, I think that I think it's all those things. I think it's true and not true, and an excuse and not an excuse. Um, I mean, I think you know it's a it's a weird thing for Prue because you know in a way, um, the decisions to drop out of grad school and to and it's also. She, that's the point where she gives up keeping kosher and she stops being observant. Um, they feel in some ways to be empowering and autonomous acts and that she's separating from her parents and from her childhood. And yet those decisions are also tied to her tethering herself to this man. And so the degree to which those decisions reflect autonomy or something else um, is complicated. But I think everything that's complicated is what makes is what's most interesting in fiction. Um, and then in terms of what you're saying about metaphor is it the metaphor of that for a sense, I think that's there for sure. And I think that there are, you know, in any book that's working, there are things are working both on a literal and on a metaphorical level. I think as a writer, it's really important, at least for the kind of fiction that I write, for the writer not to be thinking about metaphors. I think the metaphor the metaphorical meaning comes in through the back door. But if the writer himself or herself themselves um, thinks about those things, then I think the um, the novel is kind of dead on arrival. I mean, Flannery O'Connor writes about this, about her story, um, Good Country People, um, which is you know a famous O'Connor story that ends with a Bible salesman stealing the wooden leg of the main character, Hulga. Um, and O'Connor, in writing about that story in her book, Mystery of Manners, said that you can look at the leg as, you know, as a metaphor, that there's a wooden part to hug a soul, but that as a writer, you have to look at it as a leg. It's as a wooden leg. You have to take things on there as objects, take things on their literal level. And the metaphorical implications come about by inhabiting your characters fully. Writer start starts to think about metaphors usually gets into trouble. Metaphors come in subconsciously.
0: Yeah, it seems like in a way, if it's, it's in your peripheral vision, like you never really focus on it. You can see it there, but you, you don't even want to look directly at it.
1: I think that's definitely true. I, I, what I tell my graduate students, is, and I blew this for myself too, is that you have to sort of trust your intuition to take you to the right places. And you're going to bark up a lot of wrong trees. But I think when you read enough and when you study fiction enough and when you go to an MFA program like I did and like my students do, um, you end up barking up a lot of wrong trees, but you, you're you in the right forest. And so eventually you find the right tree. And I think that I'm um, just to hark back to what Garcia Marquez said about the first paragraph. So my second novel, Matrimony, is about a, is about a marriage. And it's about this couple that meet in a fictional college in the Northeast. It's sort of based on Hampshire College. Um, and the two characters are Julian and Mia. And um, Mia is from Montreal. And my students have asked me, or people have asked me, you know, how I how I decided to make her from Montreal, or how I decided to do how you decide to do anything in fiction, how you choose your details. And so the story I tell, because it's true, is that um, I didn't know she was from Montreal, um, but um, I had a girlfriend in college named Laura, and um, I saw her in the freshman Facebook, um, the way Julian saw Mia in the freshman Facebook uh, in the novel, Magic And Laura was from Larchmont, New York. So, and my roommate referred to her as Laura from Larchmont, so i instinctively thought alliteration i thought mia from montreal now mia could have could have been mia from maryland or mia from, Madag- from madagascar and if it had been mia from maryland then there could have been a long backstory about her you know her family's history on the maryland shore but for whatever reason i thought mia from montreal and so then i had to decide how she you know how she started out in montreal and ended up in college in massachusetts so it's possible she could have been from a long Quebecois secessionist family. Or she could have been, as she did turn out to be, the daughter of parents, uh, one of whom got his PhD in physics from MIT. And the mother got her PhD in art history from Harvard. And they moved to Montreal so the father could take a job at McGill. And the mother gave up the career, her career for the father. And Mia always resented the fact that her mother gave up her career for her father. And so Mia was determined to come back to Massachusetts where her parents met to sort of revisit and sort of redo what her parents did. Now, that didn't all come to me in one fell swoop. It took me many years to come up with that. But, um, but that's what I came up with. And it all came up from the instinct of Mia from Montreal. So I do think of fiction as sort of almost like an associative game of telephone, is that you put something down on the page, and then you have to live with what you put down on the page. I always tell my students, is you can write anything for the first word of your book. And then the second word is beholden to the first word, and the third word is beholden to the first two. And so to get back to Morningside Heights, early on, at least in some draft, that opening line that I just read, um, growing up in Bexley in the suburbs of Columbus, Prue had been drawn to the older boys, thinking they could take her far from home. I think that those last two clauses, Prue had been drawn to the older boys, thinking they could take her far from home, just came to me instinctively. And then I had to ask myself, okay, who is this character? Why is she drawn to older boys? What does far from home mean to her? And the the, the novel really grows out of that.
0: It seems like it's almost also a game with your subconscious that where you drop a breadcrumb and then you're finding out what that means. Like Mia from Montreal, you could have been like, oh, then she definitely likes ice skating or something like that because you you planted this seed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that um, I forgot who said it, but probably many people have said it, but, you know, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And I think if you're going to spend five, 10 years on a book, as I often do in my books, you need to be interested. You need to be curious. You, you don't want to know your characters too well, too soon. Uh, Charles Baxter in his book of essays, um, Burning Down the House, has an essay where he talks about characters that are overparented. And what he means is that characters where the writer knows them too well, too soon, where all the arrows are pointing in the same direction, and those characters are less interesting. And so um, I really believe in, in, in a kind of autonomy for my, for my characters, certainly autonomy for my conscious, if not for my subconscious. And so, yeah, you do plant a breadcrumb. And, uh, and you see where it goes. Um, and that, that sense of discovery is very important to me as a writer.
0: So Spence was an expert at Shakespeare, which seems particularly painful because one of the things that you lose with Alzheimer's is language. And I was just curious about choosing his profession since you were going to show this brain degeneration.
1: It's a great question. I mean, you know, in, an, in an early draft, Spence was an art historian and it didn't work, in part because I don't know enough about art history, but I think also more deeply because it didn't feel true to who Spence was. You know, Spence is kind of an aesthetic. Not that you couldn't be an aesthetic and be an art historian, but Spence is really uninterested in like things physical. I mean, he's interested in beauty, but the beauty of Shakespeare is it's not a physical beauty in the same way that visual art thinks about beauty. And I I think also just in deep ways. I mean, that Spence is very much based on, he's he's based on my father. And my father was a law professor, but I didn't really, I, I guess I wanted to have things not be too close to home. And I also feel like some of the most salient qualities of Spence's personality and of my father's personality don't line up as much with being a law professor as with being a Shakespeare scholar, which is that they, that both my father and Spence were very much about like learning for learning's sake. I mean, law school is a a pre-professional school. It's a professional school. My dad was very much not a professional sort of guy. He really believed in learning for learning's sake. And I also thought that it would be, I wanted Spence to have a kind of, like a certain kind of rock star professor appeal, a kind of crossover appeal to a broader audience, even though he himself is a real snob and probably didn't feel comfortable with having that crossover appeal. And so it seemed in various practical ways, because of the role that Shakespeare plays in the public consciousness, the idea that he could write a book that would be a bestseller um, and also be very ambivalent about that, seemed much more possible if he was a Shakespeare scholar than if he were, I don't know, an anthropologist or a physicist or some other such thing.
0: Like how, how has it been for your family to read this?
1: Um, It's complicated. So um, when you say my family, you mean my family of origin or do you mean my, I mean, I, I, like I have, I have two brothers and a mother who's alive. My dad died of Alzheimer's in 2010 and I have a family that I've helped create, which is um, I have two daughters and I have, I I didn't create my wife, but I have a wife um, (laughs) and I have a dog. (laughs) <laughs> so I assume you mean my family of origin or maybe, maybe you mean both.
0: I, I really mean your family of origin and maybe your dog.
1: Yeah. Um, my dog has been a real sport about, about it. As long as he gets to go out and sniff things, he, you know, he, he's fine with whatever I write. Um, my, it's complicated. So I was concerned about this issue. And it actually, I think it hampered some of the earlier drafts. Of the book. So, most specifically, so at some point, you know, relatively late in the book, Prue has an affair with Walter, this man she meets. This is sort of late in uh, Spence's dementia when he's pretty far gone. But Prue is extremely loyal to Spence. And that loyalty to Spence is probably the thing that's most borrowed from my mother's relationship to my father, by which I mean that although Spence is very similar to my father, Prue is, only, uh, Prue is only similar to my mother in certain ways, but that's the most salient way is that issue of loyalty. And so I was concerned. So for a long time, Prue was not having an affair with Walter. It was like a friendship, but it it, was, it had this tinge of romance slash desire, but it was never, never came close to being consummated An earlier draft, and a lot of my early readers kind of felt like, "What's Walter's role in the book?" And they pushed me to have that be more of a real, of of a sexual relationship. And it was obviously the right decision, but it took me a long time to get there because I knew that when my mother read the book, she would see shades of herself and shades, shades of herself and proven shades of my father and Spence, and I was worried about that. And um, she's very loyal to his memory many years after his death. I mean, he's been been dead almost 11 years now. Um, And my brothers, to different degrees, are also very loyal to his memory. I mean, not that I'm not, but I just think each of us is different. On the other hand, my mother is a smart woman and an educated woman and a reader of fiction. And she understands the difference between fiction and life. And she understands even the difference between Fiction that's based on actual characters, actual people in real life and actual life. And so I just had a feeling that she would be fine with it. And so I had a conversation with her two or three years ago and told her, you know, more or less what the book was about, and told her about about Walter. And she was actually, she was actually really fine with it. What's made things more complicated since then is that my mother too has developed dementia. Since then, she's in her late 80s now and she now has dementia you know, she's still herself in a lot of ways. And I just saw her last night and, you know, she knows about my book, but the way she can relate to the book now is different from how she could have related to it a few years ago. So that's my complicated answer to your question. But it was something that I struggled with because, you know, it's, because this book is more autobiographical than most of my other books. See, it's much easier to write material that is less autobiographical because you don't have to worry about things that you're raising. Although I I, kind of believe that all fiction is emotionally autobiographical. And I think, you know, even things that are not at all based on the writer's life. I think if someone knows the writer well, they could understand, you know, where it comes from. And I think even and then on the other hand, I think things that seem transparently autobiographical may be non-autobiographical in other ways. I mean it's sort of like asking are oh, your dreams autobiographical. I mean, by definition they are because you had them, but I think the way things play out it's complicated. You know, it's interesting writer readers often are interested in like what's true, what actually happened. And I'm often asked that on books. Did this happen to you? Did you know is this character based on someone you know? And I actually think that that is less like if you if you're really interested in the writer's psychology and I'm not sure why anyone should be, but if you are, what the writer invents is more in some ways more revealing than what the writer doesn't invent. What the writer doesn't invent is simply what happened what the writer invents tells you much more about the writer's psychology, I think.
0: Well, first, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. Um, It's interesting to hear how, like, you're, you're writing a book to put out in the world. Ostensibly, any human being in the world could find your book and read it. Billions of people. But yet, you're thinking about two or three readers that impacted some decisions that you made for it for a while. It's just so human, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean,
1: that's true of all of us, whether we're writers or not, you know, we, you know, we're out in the world and relating to strangers all the time. And yet we are carrying with us all the things that we think about in terms of our personal lives. That's always true.
0: Tell me about your decision to travel throughout the book into the mind frames of the different characters?
1: I think as the book grew and grew, it became apparent to me that I I needed to be in in more than one point of view. <clears throat> I mean, I, I think it grows out of what I said earlier that I wasn't interested really in being in Spence's point of view or certainly not in Spence's point of view as he's declining. Um, I mean, I think that's been done before and it's been done well. And I don't have a problem with that, but it wasn't, it didn't interest me to let the reader know what it's like to be confused. Um, because that felt to me like too much, too performative, too much in active ventriloquism. And so what I was interested in was you know, all these other characters. Because I'm so interested in sort of in novels that take place over a long period of time and in character and in family. This is not unique to Alzheimer's, but I think it may be particularly true of Alzheimer's. But, you know, when a parent gets sick and eventually dies, what that does is it brings people back to to their roots in some way, and yet they've also strayed really far from their roots. And so, you know, it would be different if Spence got sick when the nuclear family was all together, and Arlo and Sarah and Prue and Spence were all living under the same roof, but because Arlo is estranged in a lot of ways to start off with, and because Sarah is off at medical school, and because you know because their lives are far flung, um, I think what you have is characters who have, you know, preoccupations that are um, very different from what's going on with Spence right now. And so I wanted to capture both what it was like for them to be with Spence in the moment of his illness, but also for Sarah at medical school, or for Arlo doing whatever Arlo was doing. And I think for that, it was really necessary um, to be in many points of view. Um, I think a book that is as spacious as this is hard to do in a single point of view. You asked before about my dog. You may be able to hear my dog barking in the background. So he makes himself noticed.
0: I think he's just in in deep agreement with what you're saying. Clearly. Tell me a little bit about Arlo. So he he is a son that Spence had in an earlier marriage. He is growing up mostly with his mother who's um she wanders all over the world. She is kind of a difficult. She's certainly not a disciplinarian. She doesn't care necessarily if he goes to school or not. She's kind of has some hippie ideas, and he feels estranged from his father, and also really loves him. and And it feels like his father didn't care about him. Whereas, I, in my reading, his father cared deeply about him. She, he was just impotent on certain levels to have have more influence in his life. And then Arlo, you write, he gets caught up in the moment of things, doesn't speak up, and he he really wants to belong, but he can't. So he, he was a really interesting character that provided another lens on who Spence was. And I was just curious about the decision to have him have this other child and, and his role in the book.
1: Yeah, your reading of Arlo is very similar to my reading of Arlo. Um, I mean, it's, it's exactly the same as my reading of Arlo and, and, and your reading of Spence's relationship to Arlo, um, instead of like caring, but being impotent in some ways and is also my reading of Spence vis-a-vis Arlo. Um, yeah, so even though Prue is the protagonist of the book, I'd say, I would say in some ways Arlo is at least as important and Arlo is what opened up the book for me. So, I can't remember in what draft. But I mean, Arlo wasn't there originally. And I think the book was suffering from, you know, the problem that I laid out before. You know, I think of fiction as defamiliarizing the familiar or familiarizing the unfamiliar or both. And so um, when you're writing about Alzheimer's, it's kind of familiar what's going to happen. And So the question was how to sort of break out of that, that problem. And, you know, how to write a book about Alzheimer's that's sad, but that's not simply sad, and that's more complicated. Because if you write a book about Alzheimer's that's simply sad, that's really not defamiliarizing the familiar. That's simply familiarizing the familiar. And you can do better or worse versions of that, but it's still not defamiliarizing the familiar. And at some point I said to myself, and I don't know how I came up with this, but I just said, you know, what if Spence, had been married before and had a child from that previous marriage. And I kind of said, nah, no way. But I said, well, try it. I just wrote a chapter about Arlo. It did, that chapter just really took off. I'm not saying I'm not saying it was an easy chapter to write. In some ways, it was among the hardest material for me, because that was this, the material that was in some ways the most invented, but um, it opened up the book. And the, even in terms of the structure of the book, Arlo's, you know, appearance and disappearance and reappearance, um, really sort of guides how the book is told, and yeah, and I am interested in Arlo. I mean, I mean, he is the black sheep of the family, but I'm interested in him because he's really different from from everyone else. You know, Sarah, you know, she ends up going to medical school. She she is the kind of kid, who um, whom you'd expect, to be the daughter of Spence and the daughter of Prue and Spence. Spence is someone for whom like academic excellence is just so essential. And then to have a son for whom that does not come naturally is really hard for Spence and it's really hard for Arlo. You know, Arlo's dyslexic and Spence just can't get it into his thick skull for a time that it's not simply just a matter of trying harder. And so I just think that that, that relationship the relationship between arlo and spence and the relationship between arlo and prue cuz prue is the stepmother and that's always a very hard position to be in is really what drives the book in a lot of ways even if prue is the most important character i feel like in other ways arlo is at least as important
0: i know because of of covid that the publisher put off publishing this book for a year and i wonder if that was really difficult and, and nail biting for you one because you just had to wait for it and you were done. But also if you ever woke up in the middle of the night and was like, well, I got an extra year. Can I change this paragraph?
1: You laugh, but I, I mean, I did change some things and I actually changed some things yeah, in the last, even a, even a few months ago. Um, I mean, little things. And, 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 you know, like when I give public readings of my work, I'm, I'm it's all I can do not to put a pen to um, I'm just very compulsive on the sentence level, and you know changing dialogue tags back back and forth, changing commas. I mean, I, I'm, yeah, so um, and I, th- I think that's one reason to publish a book is that you can eventually you have to stop making changes because I would continue to make changes even afterward. you know in terms of the um the books being delayed, I mean, I say jokingly, it's a little bit like being pregnant and carrying past term. I mean, I have I obviously, don't know about that firsthand, although my wife was past term with both of our, our kids. It was frustrating in a certain way, but I'm actually, um, because you know you're kind of impatient for the book to get, come out, but I'm really, really grateful to my publisher for putting it off. I mean, it was scheduled to come out last June, and it's, you know that was right after COVID started. And I think the publishing world has figured out how to, very well, how to publish books during COVID. Um, and obviously, COVID is still with us, so we're still ch- trying to figure out how to publish books during COVID. Um, but I think last June, when COVID was only a couple months old, I think people were really flying by the seat of their pants. And um, so I'm really, really grateful to Pantheon Knopf, Random House, for uh, yeah, for for pushing it off a year because I think the book is in a much better position um, to reach the readers that we wanted to reach uh, than it would have been a year ago. And then I think you know an additional benefit is you know I always tell my students and I tell myself that it's um yeah, it's really important to be at work to be deep into a new project when your book comes out because you know when your book comes out you're at the mercy of things that are out of your control you know how it's going to be received critically and then you know what the sales are going to be there's you know there's a lot of luck involved with that and. So you want to try not to be too obsessed about that. And obviously, you know, I think most writers do get obsessed about those things to one degree or another. But I've always said that um, if you can be deep into another project, then you feel less invested in the book that comes out. And obviously, you're still really invested, but you can sort of say, well, that was my last book, but now I'm working on on something new. Um, But I've never really been able to do that before because just the way that the publishing cycle works is, you know, you finish the book and it goes into copy editing and then it goes into production and then you have to help out in whatever ways um, with promotion to the book. And there isn't really much time. And I teach, you know, I have a family I mean, a lot of stuff on my plate. So you don't really have that much time to be able to start with a new project. But because, you know, the book was supposed to come out last June and then it last, you know, March, April, it was pushed off a year. I was kind of given a year to start working on a new book. So I'm pr- fairly deep into a draft of a new novel. And so that was a real gift that the publication delay gave me. So I kind of feel like, you know, for all the awful things that COVID has brought about, obviously in the world, but even, you know, in my family, um, I feel like this was one real blessing.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: So this is a sto- from a story by, by Alice Munro called Mile City, Montana. And Alice Monroe is a hugely influential writer for me in general, so I wanted to pick something um, from her. And I'm going to read a short passage from this story and then explain sort of why it was influential to me. This is a story that takes place over many years, um, but the principal action of the story uh, takes place on a cross-country trip with a wife who is the third-person protagonist. Actually, it's the first-person, excuse me. She's the first-person narrator. And her husband, and their two young daughters, um, and they go across the country, and there's a near drowning that happens. Um, the do- one daughter almost drowns in the swimming pool, but she doesn't. And that's the main. That's the main here and now narrative. But in the backdrop to this is that there are tensions in the marriage, and um, and so I'm going to read a section that's really about the marriage. And this is before. The near drowning takes place, and the first-person narrator is kind of she's sort of analyzing her marriage, and so she's talking in general time. Then we move into actual scene. I would think how humble he was, really taking on such a ready-made role of husband, father, breadwinner, and how I myself, in comparison, was really a secret monster of egotism, not so secret either, not from him. At the bottom of our fights, we served up what we thought were the ugliest truths. I know there is something basically selfish and basically untrustworthy about you, Andrew once said. I've always known it. I also know that is why I fell in love with you. Yes, I said, feeling sorrowful but complacent. I know that I'd be better off without you. Yes, you would. You'd be happier without me. Yes. And finally, finally, racked and purged, We clasped hands and laughed, laughed at those two benighted people ourselves, their grudges, their grievances, their self-justification. We leapfrogged over them. We declared them liars. We would have wine with dinner or decide to give a party. I haven't seen Andrew for years. Don't know if he is still thin, has gone completely gray, insists on lettuce, tells the truth, or is hearty and disappointed. Um, that's the end of the section. I chose this this excerpt from the Monroe story because it's one of the things I love about Monroe and one of the things I love about fiction. Um, so to sort of appreciate that last line, and I'll re- repeat that last line again, I haven't seen Andrew for years, don't know if he is still thin, has gone completely gray, insists on lettuce, tells the truth, or is hearty and disappointed. So to appreciate that out of context is very hard, but I always think of a Monroe story as being like an onion, and you're peeling back the onion. There are always more layers than you realized. So that story's relationship to time, although it covers a big expanse of time, you don't realize before that sentence or after that sentence that the story is being told many years in the future, And that this couple has divorced, and it's only with that sentence that we get this sudden moment of telescoping into the future, and then we go back to the current scene. And it's um, it's to me an example of how structure can be beautiful. And I always think, um, you know, when we talk about structure with my graduate students, I think they kind of think of it as workmanlike. Like, Like, yeah, I got to have a structure, I got to have a plot, I have to have think about narrative. It's unfortunate but necessary. I think Monroe proves that there is a beauty to structure. And there's a lot of beauty to Monroe's work on a, on a level of the psychology of characters. But so much of what Monroe is interested in and is interesting about has to do with time and the way that the time of her story surprises you. And because time is such a big part of Morningside Heights, I thought I would choose that section as a way of thinking about time as an aesthetic issue and not simply a practical issue.
0: Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: Yeah, I guess what I've, what I've chosen to read is the is section from Morning, Morningside Heights, which first introduces Arlo. And it's less that it changed a lot, although everything in my books changes a lot. Um, but it's more that um, this is what opened up the book for me. And what was trickier, or hard was trying to think about time. Like here I am writing about someone who's just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. In fact, in the, the very last sentences before the section I'm about to read is right after Spence is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And uh, there's a sentence that says, as soon as she got home, Prue called Sarah. Dad has Alzheimer's, she said. We need to tell Arlo. So at this point in the book, Arlo has not been actually in scene. And so what was really tricky or hard was how do I introduce Arlo at a moment of crisis, but also give a kind of heft to backstory? And so a lot of it was a technical issue where I needed to sort of both root Arlo in the present moment, but be able to transition associatively and seamlessly to his past. And so I'm going to read the section where Arlo is first introduced, and you'll notice that we're first in his point of view, and he's there as an adult. And you'll notice how quickly the book manages to transition to his childhood, so that we're getting the full sense of who he is. That brings us up to the point, so that we can get him back to the here and now. This is the beginning of part three of the book, chapter eight. Um, and I'll just read you know half to three quarters of a page. Arlo Zakheim always got wind of things. He didn't have ESP exactly. He was simply more intuitive than other people. This helped him, he believed, in business and in life. He liked to have the maximum information about others while revealing the minimum information about himself. He listed his phone numbers as anonymous so that people wouldn't know who was calling. Sometimes, just for the kick of it, he would leave an automated email message. I don't feel like checking email today. I'll get back to you when the urge overtakes me. But all the while, he was secretly checking. You hate surprise, his mother told him once. Who could blame him? His own childhood had been so replete with surprise. The only constant was the surprise itself, starting with his parents' divorce when he was only eight months old. He was convinced he could remember his parents together, but his father told him that was impossible. Arlo didn't care what his father said. He spent his whole life trying to forget his father even as he yearned for him from afar, and he considered the word impossible a challenge, impossible to hold your breath for as long as he'd held his as a baby, holding it until he turned blue. People spoke about iron wills, but scientists had yet to discover a will as strong as his. He had run two marathons 48 hours apart, 200 push-ups, fasting for days, lying in a hyperbaric chamber, extreme caving, Tantric sex, dry orgasm. He didn't care what his father said. He remembered his parents together, recalled his father saying, well, good goddamn." his father who never cursed, who referred to it as cussing, who called dog shit, dog dirt. I hate my father.
0: Do you want to say anything else or did you say it all?
1: I think I said it all, maybe, or most of it at least beforehand. But I think one thing you might notice from that passage is how, and this is one of the wonderful things about fiction. You know, people talk about the opening, opening sentence of um, Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, where he's standing before the, the firing squad. That character is in three moments in time. And one of the things that fiction can do, that film, for instance, can't do, is fiction can be in many moments in time simultaneously, whereas film has to be in a single moment in time at any given moment. And I think one of the things you'll notice about the passages that I read from is how it's constantly toggling back and forth between Arlo as an adult and Arlo as a child and kind of the way time melts together. And um, so I think on a microcosmic level, um, that was doing it so that something that really interested me about fiction in general, macrocosmically.
0: Where do you write? I live in
1: Brooklyn, and I used to write at the, uh, the Brooklyn Writer Space, which is, you know, what it sounds like. You know, you become a member. And um, I used to write there because I didn't know the internet password and so it prevented me from getting on the internet. And I like getting out into the world. And so I walk to work and back from work. But in recent years, particularly because time seems so sparse and so precious, I have decided to work from home. Uh, my, w- my wife's an academic and we share we have a really nice big home office. And I've managed to really not check email and not check the internet, um, even though I do know the password here in my home. Um, and so I now write at
0: home. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I mean, there's, there's so much, I mean, to me, the the struggle is finding the time to write as opposed to figuring out what to do when I'm not writing. I mean, There's there's so many obligations in terms of teaching and in terms of family and just terms of having a life that to me, the focus is finding time to write. But once I'm not writing really depends what I'm doing. Like if I'm preparing for class and I just, I'm sitting at the same desk that I sit at when I write. I'm just doing something different. Um, But I also feel like it's important to get outside And um, because I work from home. And even though I teach, I'm not on campus all that much. A lot of my my teaching preparation takes place at home. I think it's important to get outside. So um, I live near Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And I often walk or run around the loop. Um, And that sort of both gets me away from writing in a certain way, but also keeps me close to writing because I feel like a lot of the ideas I have for writing come when I am out and about and moving. There's something, I guess, amniotic, maybe for lack of a better way of putting it, something about the movement. I find that I come up with good ideas for what I'm struggling with in my fiction when I'm walking. And so walking in the park is a way to both get away from but also attend to my writing at the
0: same time. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have a few trusted readers that I show my work to. Um, five or six people are my are my ideal my readers. I have one person in particular who's he's also a writer who is um, he's saved at least one of my books and maybe arguably more than one. So I, I never show my work until I have a complete draft. I really think you have to live alone. Whether you work, you have to. Make your own mistake. You know, when I was an MFA student, you know, eons ago now, and I couldn't write a paragraph without showing it to a friend and sure it drove them crazy. Um, and I think one of the hard things for my grad students now is, um, you know, being in workshop and, um, you know, constantly showing your work. I mean, I think it's, they like it because it, it keeps them honest and they have to produce work, but I think it's also hard. It's hard, and I, I, I could never, I would never show, work in its early stages the way my students are forced to do but then once i get a complete draft then i really do rely on my few valued readers and i i think you can't you have to hoard your chips very carefully like for instance i could show my five readers the same draft but then what happens i have to totally rewrite the book and i do occasionally show one or two of my readers a revised draft but it's so hard to even if it's something is really deeply revised it's so hard to read it. And I don't know how editors do this. It's so hard to read a second draft and not remember the first draft. You really only have one chance to make a first impression. So what I tend to do is I tend to show two or three people my first complete draft, and then I get their feedback and totally rewrite it, and then show the new draft to my next two or three readers so that I have enough people who are really looking at it for the first time.
0: How have you dealt with rejection? You act like that's a past tense question. I mean, I think you know, it's uh,
1: you know, it's constant. You know, you, you mean I guess depending on how you define rejection, you it never ends. Someone's not going to like your book, or you're not going to win the National Book Award. And if you do win the National Book Award, then you're not going to win the Pulitzer. And if you do win the Pulitzer, you're not going to win the Nobel. So, I mean, if you do, if you're willing to define rejection broadly enough, you'll always be rejected. And so I think I think what you do is you have to harden yourself. Um, and um, any any writer who wants to find someone who say something bad about their book, all they have to do is get on Goodreads, and they can find it. I'm pretty good at externalizing. I'm pretty good at like, you know, seeing uh, rejection as a challenge. I mean, I, I'll give you I'll give you an example. And as I said earlier in our in our discussion, I was I originally a more instinctive critic than I was an instinctive writer. I had to learn how to become. An instinctive writer. When I started to write fiction, I took a workshop. I was living in the Bay Area, and I took a workshop that I think it was at the Berkeley Extension School. And the teacher, when my story was up, I can't, can't really can't believe he said this, but he did. Um, he said something to the effect of, wow, Josh, you know, you're a really good critic. I thought the work would be much better. <laughs> um, that was obviously very upsetting and painful. But I always took that as like, a spur a good to get better and to be better. And I, I'm sure, I don't remember the story I submitted, but I'm sure it wasn't very good. And I'm not going to mention the name of the person who said this, but I can tell you that um, that looking back, I've done a lot better than he has. <laughs> um, and that may seem like, you know, petty and competitive, and I apologize if it does seem that way. But I guess that's all by way of saying that, um, you know, I think what's really important is how you bounce back from rejection. And I've always bounced back well. You know, I tend not to wallow. I tend to take it as a a challenge to prove that the rejection was erroneous. You know, it's interesting because I've been teaching grad students for a long time and a lot of my grad students have done incredibly well. Not always the ones that I would have bet. And it's certainly not always the ones who are most talented. I think that, that a writer can be their own worst enemy and a writer can be their own best friend. And I've seen writers who seem determined, at least on a subconscious level, not to get their book working. And I think there are lots of components to that. But I think, you know, one thing, you know, I've heard of writers who like had a horrible experience in workshop and and stopped writing. And I kind of feel like, well, then they weren't going to write anyway. I think that there's no level of rejection that should make someone stop doing what they feel passionately about. And so I think the way is to channel the rejection in the best manner possible. And I think that, you know, I, mean, I have strengths and weaknesses as a writer and as a human, but I think one of my uh, my strengths, certainly as a writer, maybe as a human too, but is that I'm pretty perseverant. Um, and I guess the flip side of that is is stubborn and that could be a problematic quality, but I feel like I'm not easily dissuaded, and so if someone says something is bad, my goal is okay. How am I going to make it good? I'm, a, I'm actually a very good reviser. Uh, that's one of my biggest strengths as a writer. And I think being a good reviser takes a number of qualities, but it, one quality it takes is being willing to hear criticism and being being willing to accept rejection and bounce back from it. So I guess I think I'm pretty good at that. Not that it's not painful, but I think I'm pretty good at that.
0: And what is your favorite word? I'm going
1: to say I like the word cleave um, because it means the opposite of itself. You can Things are cleaved. In other words, they're separated, but you also cleave together. There are a few words in the English language that are like that. I mean, there are many words that have distinct, they have separate meanings, but these are separate meanings that are, that are the opposite of each other. And so I like that about the word cleave. I like the sound of the word, and I like the fact that it's complicated because it means Contradictory things.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed discussing your, your work and fiction.
1: Thank you, Mitzi. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Joshua Hankin, author of the novel Morningside Heights. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Matthew Thomas, author of the novel We Are Not Ourselves, about a couple dealing with Alzheimer's disease. We discuss sentence-level truths, American women in the second half of the 20th century, and writing toward revelation. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash writers. Coming up in the next few months on first draft interviews with Kevin McElvoy, Jennifer Steinorth, Grant Faulkner, and Ben Winters. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes first draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.